Good morning, everyone. It is January the 20th, 2021. This is Manchester is Burning. This is a special episode that I've been promising y'all for a little while. Been talking to my friends about and posting that this one was going to drop on this day, the 20th of January. And there's a special unfortunate reason why. I'm going to talk about football. I'm going to talk about mental health, and I'm going to talk about suicide today. You're not going to get the same energy, or maybe it's going to be a different energy today. This is a very serious topic, but a very important one. And I'll bring it on home in many levels for you in the next few minutes, or maybe longer. I have prepared no notes. I have no script. I know what I want to talk about, and it's going to be straight from the mind, straight from the heart today. I also noted today in the United States is Inauguration Day. And for many reasons in the United States and in the world, it's a very important one. But I'm not going to talk about that, at least today. Because today is a different day for me, January the 20th. I want to talk first about a young man who plays for Manchester United. His name is Mason Greenwood. Mason Greenwood has been with United for quite a long time, for the majority of his life, from what I understand, or at least the majority of his teenage years. He made his first appearance at the age of 16 on the first team. Last season, his goal conversion rate even though he's playing out of position in the right wing, was, dare I say, incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, an XG in all competitions, a 5.9, and scored 17 goals. And that type of conversion is otherworldly and yes it's only one season he was 17 years old at the time but everyone could see his talent everyone could see his abilities everyone could see the potential of what he could bring and he wasn't even 20 wasn't even in his prime of footballing years yet however there was an incident in the summer where he and Phil Foden were on national team duty in Iceland. And they, uh, as young men do, unfortunately, in the COVID era, you can't really do this. But he and Phil, apparently friends, now Phil Foden plays for Manchester City, and that's going to be important in a second. I mentioned that. They got busted on social media and other ways. Inviting some young women to their hotel room. Yeah. One could easily say, yeah, that's what young men do. But in, like I said, on international duty, representing your country, representing your clubs during the COVID area and living in a bubble, which is extremely hard for anybody and everybody and has been. They broke protocols on multiple levels. And they have been, both of them have been, Remo- had been removed from the squad 
been there have been consequences both by the English national team and more directly, I think, unfairly or otherwise, in the media. Now, it's interesting that I want to point out that the media scrutiny on Mason Greenwood has been, dare I say, in my own opinion, to be harsh after this international incident. Very harsh, actually, in my opinion. One of the reasons why, I'll be honest and say, that he plays for Manchester United and Phil Foden plays for Manchester City. Manchester City is one of the biggest clubs in the world, but however, Manchester United is one of the biggest, if not probably the top three biggest clubs in the world. So the media scrutiny is going to be harder on those players if they go out offline or go sideways. I think the other factor, unfortunately, is a racial one. Mason is a black player. Phil is not. There has been so much media bias in the UK and in the United States against black players, black footballers. The media coverage of black players is different than for white players. I can spend an entire hour discussing the reasons and discussing the examples of which. But in Mason Greenwood's case, it's been particularly harsh. So you have a 19-year-old, now 19, but he was 18 at the time, at one of the biggest clubs in the world, on national team duties, member of the national English team, who media spotlight is all over him. So the question was, is how is he going to react? How is he going to respond on the football pitch? So that's what fans care about, right? How's he going to respond? How's he going to do? Is he going to perform as well this season as he did last? It would be very hard to do so. I mean, he scored 17 goals at three assists in all competitions last year. So far this year, he has played in all competitions 1,007 minutes, which is an, on average 11 minutes a game, minutes per 90. Has had 12 starts, 21 appearances. Last year, he had 49. So far, he's had three goals and two assists. The subjective eye and the objective facts of the downward decline of Mason Greenwood's performance is, dare I say, stark. He has received criticism for what happened in Iceland. He's received criticism for being lazy. Okay. There's been rumors and some media reports that players on his own squad have kind of turned on him for his lack of effort in some matches and training, etc. That has happened. Whether or not that is true or not is unknown. However, sometimes these rumors have a little bit of a basis in reality, and sometimes people will run with rumors with no facts. We've talked about this on that pot in this podcast as well. His manager, Ole Gunnar Skullshire, has defended him, has said that he's been going through a rough time, 
Some of his teammates have also defended him, and that's a good thing. He's received important support. But there's one factor I want to talk about that not has not really been talked about enough. It hasn't been talked about enough, and because there's a stigma behind it. See, I want to give you another name. Another name that I want y'all to remember and echo through your mind, y'all's minds today. And I'll get to his name in one moment. Welcome back to this special edition of Manchester is Burning. So I want to talk about a young man that I want y'all to remember. His name is Jeremy Whiston. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. On October the 24th of 2020, Jeremy, age 18, was found dead in his room at his family home in the Manchester area. He died by his own hands by hanging. Yes, he died by suicide. Jeremy was a football player, he was a young football player, and he actually had been with the Manchester City Youth Academy system for up, I think, for three to four years. He and his family are from Malawi. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly as well. I have trouble pronouncing some names. I apologize. And he had a tremendous love for football. He had a tremendous love for his family. He had a tremendous love for his friends. However, injuries and reportedly, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, reportedly depression and mental health issues had impacted his development, his talent, incredibly, to the point where he left the Manchester City Academy system very recently before his passing. Mason Greenwood and Jeremy knew each other. I don't know how well they knew each other, but reports have shown that there was a relationship there. Remember, you know, the the footballing world and youth academies and so forth, when it's in one city, actually is a very closed circle. It's It's a bubble of its own. And so these players know each other. These youth players know each other. So Jeremy and and Mason knew each other. They were friends from what I gather from the reports I've read in the media. Upon Jeremy's death, a lot of outpouring of emotion by his former teammates on Manchester City, members of the first team, the youth youth team, uh, sorry, competing in the FA Youth FA Cup, wore T-shirts during training and during warm-ups and even under their their jerseys during their FA Youth Championship run, honoring 
his passing, his life. Mason actually scored a goal in the Champions League against Leipzig soon after Jeremy's death. And he dedicated goal to him. It is clear based on reports that I've seen that Mason was deeply affected by Jeremy's suicide. Deeply. Particularly as a young man. Particularly in this time. So you have the incident in Iceland. You have the COVID era. You have the isolation. The bubble. The expectations. The media. And Mason himself during that time in the in the fall, early winter, had liked people's Instagram posts, you know, encouraging people to, to lay off. He lost his friend to suicide. And it's deeply affecting. Remember, this man is young, just a young man. He's 19 years old. And he's playing for one of the biggest clubs in the world. Publicly embarrassed in the media over Iceland. Publicly embarrassed over his performance. And it's been a downward spiral since. Luckily, from my understanding, it seems that his manager and his teammates have, for the most part, supported him, which is very, very important. I will get that later on. I want to tell you that I've been a mental health professional since the year 1996. My specialty is crisis mental health. My specialty is suicide. And what I mean by that is my specialty is, is the, in around the areas of crisis, suicide, violence to others, psychosis, substance abuse, but in a crisis sense. What is a crisis? Simply defined, it is a complete loss of homeostasis added on to normal coping skills, not being effective to manage the situation of lack of homeostasis. Now I won't go into, you know, how people deal with crises. People deal with crises in multiple different ways. People fall into crises in more often than others sometimes depending on a lot of circumstances. And I'll get to those a little bit later. But I've been in mental health for 26 years. I've been a crisis clinician. I've been a crisis supervisor for, for much of that time. I have dealt with suicide professionally more often than I would like to count. It is a war that has multiple multiple thousands, thousands, millions of casualties. Not just those who pass away. It's also the ones that are left behind. Such as Mason Greenwood. And such is myself. When I was 15 years old, I was in high school. I was in a military school. And there were very few girls at my school. Matter of fact, there were only 30 with 270 boys. When I was 15, I met 
a young woman who, dare I say, of course, I was 15 at the time. She was 16, probably the most beautiful young woman I'd ever seen. Auburn hair, freckles, kind of very Irish, I guess, looking maybe. And I thought I was out of my league. But I started talking to her and I got to know her, got to date her. And I found out on the first part of this journey with her that she confided in me that she had mental health issues, that she had depression, that she had eating disorder, that she had thought also about committing suicide. And at the age of 15, I didn't understand what that meant. Well, I understood what it meant. It meant, that you, it meant that you didn't want to live anymore. But I didn't understand why someone who was 16 years old with an entire life ahead of them would want to end it permanently. I didn't understand. Of course, because I was falling in love with her and she became the first love of my life, I wanted to help her. But then I realized I couldn't because I didn't know. I didn't know how. I didn't understand. I wanted to. And I didn't understand. I did, it seemed very ridiculous to me why young people would want to die. People like Mason Greenwood. Or more specifically, someone like Jeremy Whiston. At very young ages, 16, 17, 18, 19. I, and, and to be honest, I don't know anything about Mason Greenwood's current mental health, so I, I, I don't know. But but my point is the young the age of that being that young and having feeling like there's nothing of value left in living, and so you want to end it. I didn't understand, so I learned, and I changed my entire focus of my life as a result of learning about this. I studied suicide at the age of 16. I changed my direction of my education and my career to go into psychology, mental health, with the idea of helping teenagers because I didn't want anyone to die by their own hands. And here I am 26 years later and I'm still fighting the war even though the casualties continue to mount. So, she and I had a long relationship. Sometimes it was long distance, sometimes not. But in 1992, I boarded a train in August to go to California by train from Washington, D.C. It was August the 14th, 1992. I had not heard. We had kind of broken things off, she and I. And I wanted to go visit my Uncle Steve in California. So I got on a train and went on a journey. On that day, unbeknownst to me, this young woman 
who I met. Twenty-one years old. Took a combination of painkillers, alcohol, sedatives at night at her home with the intent to die. While I was in California with my uncle on the 21st of August, 1992, her family made the choice to allow her to die by the advanced directive, quote unquote, and ended her life support. And she died on August the 21st, 1992 by suicide. I did not learn about this for a while afterwards. At the time, and for many, many, many years later, it was the defining moment of my life, her death. It destroyed, almost destroyed my career. It almost destroyed my life. Because of the guilt that is caused by having a loved one die by suicide, the questions that can never be answered, the whys, the what ifs, could I have done this, could I have done that? which happens with everyone who's had a loved one die by suicide. There's a grief process and there's a lot of bargaining as part of one of the grief process and a lot of questions like, what if I was did this? What if I didn't get on that train? What if I called her? What if I did this? What if I did that? And, that, and the guilt, the survivor's guilt that comes from it over and over again, it complicates grief in ways that I cannot totally explain. But I went on with my career because I wanted to fight this war against suicide. So I just kept fighting and, and I went through it. But the grief lasted for years and years because I didn't want to face that pain. I didn't want to face those questions and the realization that I could have done nothing to stop her. I could have that it was not my fault. And I'm saying that to you, those of you who are out there who've known someone, a loved one who has died by suicide, I want to explain to you that at the end of the day, there was nothing you could do. And at the end of the day, it is not your fault. It took me years to realize that for myself, particularly as a mental health professional, particularly at the time where I was training to be one, entering graduate school. I'm amazed that I made it through, honestly. But it affected my professional career because it affected how I judge things. It's the fear, guilt, anger, all the things that come because suicide is not like another death where you can kind of understand what happened. It's unexpected when it happens. It's unexpected. And you're left with questions. How? Why? What? What could I have done? What happened? How did it happen? What could I have done? That's not the same situation as if someone died by disease or by natural causes or they had a heart attack or unfortunately or, or worse by, you know, by other means that happen, accidents, car wrecks, things like that. 
is very different because there's so many left questions and the ripple effect amongst loved ones and friends is incredible. And for me, it took over a decade after her death and her name, let me say it, her original name was Scotty Kuzak. And I will always remember her as that. She changed her name because she wanted to change her identity somewhat to Adrian. But I've always known her and will always know her as Scotty. And Scotty was talented, athletic, played sports. And she died too early. So Mason Greenwood has been mourning the death of his friend, Jeremy Whiston, for now close to almost three months. And being young and having to deal with this, along with the spotlight of, of playing on the biggest club in England, one of the biggest clubs in the world, having being embarrassed in the press, targeted in the press for what happened in Iceland, having so many expectations and then losing a friend in the midst of a lockdown where you can't be like a normal, typical 19-year-old. I cannot imagine how difficult that has been. I cannot imagine. But it has to have affected Mason Greenwood's performance on the pitch. There is no doubt in my mind. And I have a special place in my mind and in my heart for him because I know what it's like to lose a friend, a loved one. Now, I also want to tell you from my experience personally and professionally, so things to look out for in regards to risk of suicide. One of which is a common knowledge is very easy to remember. The best predictor of future behavior is past. So if someone has had a past history of suicidal behavior or self-harming behavior, then they are more likely to self-harm and attempt suicide again. That's number one. Number two, the effect of social isolation, social connectedness, or lack thereof, most importantly. If someone is socially disconnected because they have been cut off from family and friends, loved ones, etc., things that have binded them to other people, if they have lost that or that it's not existent, then the risk of suicide, self-harm is increased. Another point, paradoxically, is that there are many people who have supports in place, who have family members and friends and loved ones and people, colleagues that care about them, but they feel like they're a burden to those people. When you feel like a burden to the people around you, it is crushing. It is basically like having no connections at all because you're not going to want to talk about what's going on. You're not going to want to talk about the darkness. You're going to shut down even though you got support. So that becomes another risk factor. Another significant risk factor is depression and anxiety and mania and psychosis. 
people who are clinically depressed, who suffer from bipolar disorder, suffer from severe anxiety, people that suffer from psychosis are at higher risk of suicide than other people by the nature of their mental health conditions. Those types of conditions, I will be brutally honest with you, are have high or mortality rates than a lot of diseases that get huge amount of research. Imagine if the same amount of research had gone into mental health as it did with the AIDS crisis or cancer or other diseases, where would we be today? And there's been tremendous advancements in mental health. I don't want to discount that at all. But the stigma around suicide, the stigma about mental health, the stigma around substance abuse has been strong and it's still out there, everybody. And so it lags behind. So past history, lack of social connectedness, feeling like a burden, depression, mania, psychosis, and finally substance abuse are high indicators, high risk factors. And that's what I look for as a person, as a professional, when I evaluate someone or or I listen about someone evaluating someone for suicide risk. That is why all those things need to be addressed and need to be addressed clearly, directly, transparently, and effectively. It has to be. And for Mason Greenwood, the death of his friend Jeremy has left a gaping hole for him. A ripple effect that has affected his life personally and professionally. And sure, he's going to come out of it, but how long will that take without proper support, guidance, counseling, etc.? I hope he gets it. Why did I pick today, January 2021? 20, so remember, I told you as part of the story that. I was traveling to visit my uncle in California and I left on a train the day that Scotty took the pills in order to end her life. Today, one year ago, and I mean, my uncle and I are almost like twins. His personality and mine are virtually the same. However, he suffered from a lot of mental health issues and a lot of substance abuse issues. He had not been treated well, effectively, transparently. On January 20, 2020, 20, one year ago today, my uncle, Steve, was found dead in his home. Cause of death, suicide. He died by pills. I don't know how long he'd been there. 
because he was alone and had been alone, disconnected from everyone, including me. I don't know how long it had been since I talked to him. I don't know how long it had been since anyone had talked to him. From the reports, it seemed that he had been there for a while. But he died by his own hands. He left a note behind. I don't know what that note reads. I imagine that he felt like a burden to everyone around him and that he'd been disconnected and he was tired of feeling the pain. But one year ago today, my Uncle Steve, at one time, one of the closest family members I ever had, whose personality is very similar to mine, was found dead too. So in my life, personally, since 1992, I've lost the first love of my life, my first love, and my closest family member, emotionally, one year ago. So this means more to me. The war that I fight as a mental health professional against suicide is personal, but it has a toll. The grief is tremendous. But I fight on, I keep going, but sometimes I need a break. Sometimes I need to grieve myself, which I have not done, honestly, very well. In the case of Steve, I haven't, to be honest. I put all my energy into my professional work, watching football and talking about it, writing about it. So that's why I needed to talk about it today because I need to do that part too for myself, obviously. But to bring it back home to football, I hope Mason, as I said before, I hope he gets the assistance he needs to help him through this time because the guilt and the grief is tremendously painful and very far reaching. Once that happens and he accepts it and follows through with that help and support, he will be in touch with this talent again. And once he's in, in touch with that talent, he'll perform. But it's going to take some time and he's going to need to have some patience by those around him, including his club, including the press. Also in conclusion, In conclusion, rest in peace, Jeremy. Rest in peace, Scotty Kuzak. Rest in peace, Steve Davis. To end this, I want to reach out and talk to all of you who are listening to this. In the United States, there is help available if you are feeling sad angry, anxious, agitated, lonely, 
and feeling like you don't want to go on anymore, feeling like you don't want to live anymore, feeling like you yourself want to end your own life. There is help out there, actually. You have to reach out for it, yes. And I know it's not easy. It really isn't, honestly. I know. It takes a lot of strength and courage to do so. But there is help out there. In the United States, help is a phone call away. It's actually a chat or text away as well. In the United States, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24 hours, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. Their number is 1-800-273-8255. Let me repeat, 800-273-8255. They also operate a network of, you know, with a network of crisis call centers all across the country. I live in Georgia. There's one in Georgia. 1-800-715-4225. They also have a chat line. NSPL also has a chat line that you can also chat with someone. I close out my programs with the idea of recognizing the light is there, looking at it, letting it hug you, and as a light of hope. But I also say you have to recognize that the darkness is there too. And suicide certainly is one of the darkest things. But I also say don't let the darkness hug you. But if it does, reach out. And so I'm telling you specifically, if that darkness hugs you and you feel lost and you feel angry and you feel depressed and sad and lonely and you want, you're feeling like you want to hurt yourself and you, or you want to die or you know someone who has those thoughts and feelings, I strongly encourage you to reach out. And that's what the lifeline is for. 1-800-273-8255. Call, chat, text, 24-7-365. Thank you very much for listening to this. Tomorrow we'll get back to the football for real. All right. Thank you very much. Have a good day.